Jesus, we are humbled by your sacrifice. Why would you care to go through what you went through? It causes us to marvel. It produces a worship in our hearts that we try to express in the language or the languages that we know, but there's so much more in our heart that can never come forth. We bless you tonight. We thank you, Father, for being our God. Thank you for your faithfulness that we have sung about. Thank you for your power, Lord, that is the only explanation for our presence in this room tonight. Thank you for your victory that is ours and that we spend each day exploring in a greater measure and new circumstances than we ever have before. Thank you for seeing our need and overwhelming it in your Son. Would you freshly fill us with your Holy Spirit to now study your word in this incredible holy ground that we're going to be looking at tonight? There is no way that words can describe what is on that printed page. It takes a work of your Holy Spirit. For those of us who are very familiar with the passage, we pray that you would give us fresh eyes and a fresh heart and a fresh experience with these truths, Lord. And then, Lord, for whom all of these things are brand new, we pray that you would deeply impact them with the greatness of the sacrifice of your Son in order for us to be a forgiven people tonight. And I would just ask as we continue to pray and we consider the greatness of Jesus that any sin, any guilt, any condemnation that's been confessed to God in your life, that none of that would have a grip on any of our lives. There is no sin, not a world of sins, that is greater than the sacrifice of Jesus upon the cross. You be free tonight. Leave it with him. Let it be washed away in the greatness of what he's done for us. Bless us now in your word, we pray, Lord, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Good evening to you. Matthew chapter 27 this evening. We pick things up in verse 26, Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis 2, Revelation. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible and are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and if you wave and get their attention, they'll put a Bible in your hand. It'll be marked to our passage tonight for your convenience. And if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you tonight. We pick things up on the morning of Jesus' crucifixion as we pick things up in verse 26. Jesus has uh, just completed two trials on the morning uh, of the day of his death. One was a religious trial before the Jewish religious leaders, a trial that was an absolute farce. And then the second trial was a criminal or a civil trial that was conducted by the Roman governor of Judea at that time, a man by the name of Pontius Pilate. And Pontius Pilate, I mean, just almost incredibly, as you read the passage, he, contem he condemns Jesus to be scourged and then to be crucified um, after declaring him to be innocent repeatedly during the course of the trial. And yet Jesus had come into the world to be crucified. He's crucified from before the foundations of the world, even the Bible teaches. And so he makes his way against all logic, against all 
uh, even Roman justice, he makes his way toward that cross. So he's been, we're told in verse 26, then he, that is Pontius Pilate, released Barabbas to, uh, to them, to the religious mob, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Jesus is brought at this particular point uh, from the hall of judgment. It was probably a part of uh, Pontius Pilate's a palace there in Jerusalem into what is known as the Praetorium, a part of the Antonia Fortress there uh, in Jerusalem. It was a, a fortress, a Roman kind of fortress that was on the edges of the Temple Mount area uh, during high season like it was at this time. The feast of the Passover was being celebrated. Uh, the Ro- Roman military would be at its highest strength because That was the time when uh, the population of Jerusalem would swell to between one and two million people as pilgrims came from all over the world. And if there was a time that there might be a religious riot and a rebellion against Roman rule, it would be at a time like this. And so there was a lot of military presence. And probably at least 800 Roman soldiers were present in the praetorium uh, at the time, and at the, at the time that Jesus was handed uh, over to them, it's important as we read this passage to realize that everything that we're about to read here, and everything that Jesus experienced prior to the cross and while on the cross, he fully experienced it in the same way that you would, if you had been scourged or if you had been crucified. The Bible teaches that he is the God-man. He is all God, all man, all at the same time. It's a mystery, but it's true, and I am perfectly fine with mystery in a relationship with God. As Paul wrote to Timothy, great is the mystery of godliness, that God was manifest in the flesh. And so everything he experiences in the course of this, he experiences the same pain that you and I might experience. We're told in verse 26 that he uh, was scourged. A scourging in the ancient world under the Roman Empire was known as the half-death because that's what it was intended to accomplish in a person that had been convicted of a capital crime. They didn't want to deliver these prisoners to the cross in their full health and to then hang upon the cross for uh, days until they died of, of shock or they died of uh, dehydration or whatever. It was the intention to hand these condemned criminals over to these men who were Roman soldiers and they were experts in terms of uh, producing a quick death upon the cross. They were not allowed to scourge a person to death. The person was to die as an example of violate, made an example of violating Roman law to die upon the cross, but they were to be, half of the life was to be taken out of them through the scourging. For some of you, it's very, very familiar, the description of all of this, but again, there are passages in the Bible that I could wish that every time I read them, I read them for the first time, that they would have that impact upon me and to free me from the curse of the familiarity related to these high and inexplainable and majestic things that constitute Christianity and the life, the death and the burial and the resurrection of our Savior. 
He would be taken as Jesus probably was. Some of you probably saw Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ. I don't think that all of it was accurate, but I think an awful lot of it uh, was. One of the things that I liked about the movie is that he brought out what I felt very powerfully was the entire demonic element that surrounded the crucifixion of Jesus. We'll get a little bit into that later in the sermon when we talk about the darkness that God shrouded the entire scene of his son's crucifixion in. But they would take a man and they would either uh, take his arms and and pull him out full length up upon some kind of a a wooden pillar to stretch him out, or they would lean him over some kind of of a half pillar in order to stretch his skin out, to stretch his back out in order for uh, the giving of the lashes and the scourging upon them to have the greatest impact. They did not want the person squirming. They didn't want him moving. They were experts in what they wanted to do, and they wanted control of the situation. It is interesting, I thought, that in that movie, and I'm sorry if you never saw it for me to reference it, but they bring out the sadistic element of the Roman soldiers in that, and I don't find that to be far-fetched at all. This is what this group of soldiers did all of the time, day in and day out. And uh, in order for you to scourge a person half to death and then deliver them to be crucified as a part of your job description day in and day out, it would take a psychological toll on you and only a certain kind of a psychological makeup would allow you to be able to survive year in and year out in, in uh, that particular occupation. The, the whip that was used was a cat of nine tails. We talk about that probably somewhere between three and nine strips of leather. There would have been bone. There would have been metal that would have been wrapped in, uh, in the uh, thongs of the, of, of the leather for the purpose of then uh, striking the person and not getting a spanking like, you know, we would get maybe from our dads growing up or something. But the intent was uh, to have those metals, the, the leather strips wrap around their body, yank it back, and then take out uh, parts of, of the flesh. There are multiple descriptions in the ancient world of a scourging, and uh, it wasn't unusual for a person to die as a result of the scourging alone, going into shock with the blood loss and so forth. And, uh, and it was the descriptions described not only the entire loss of skin, Uh, upon the back, but not just on the back, on the buttocks, all the way down, again, as you might have seen in that movie where Jesus had the lashes had gone from the top of his head all the way down uh, to his legs and the bottom of his feet. This was the kind of punishment that was meted out. It wasn't unusual for a person to lose an eye and, and have all of the tendons, even the vital organs exposed as a result of the scourging. And so this is what uh, they did, and this is the, uh, what Jesus was afflicted with on top of the beatings that he had already received long before he came to the cross. There was no limit to the number of blows that uh, the Romans might afflict a person uh, with. It was their responsibility to deliver the criminal uh, alive to the cross but they didn't mind because the person was going to die anyway for meeting out, bringing them just side, this side 
of death. Scourging was used in the Roman Empire, significantly related to Jesus. It was used in order to produce confections of crimes, confession of sin. It was a way for them to kind of solve crimes that had been committed that they hadn't been able to solve. And here is this criminal uh, and, and convicted and sentenced to death. And then if, a, if, a, if one of these men uh, confessed the sin that they, uh, confessed other crimes that they had committed, then the beating would become less and less severe. The problem for Jesus is he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Uh, he has no sin to confess. He cannot confess a single sin. And so it's likely for them to look at him as becoming very, very stubborn and obstinate against uh, what it is that they're doing to him, and then for the beating to become progressively more and more severe. But he can't change that, and he can't halt that by any kind of confession because uh, he was uh, without sin. There was no sin for him to confess. So they scourged Jesus, and, and not happy with merely scourging him, he was then delivered to be crucified. But before that crucifixion begins, uh, the Roman soldiers decided to partake in a season of um, the mocking uh, of Jesus, and we're told that the soldiers of the governor, they took Jesus into the praetorium. It's one of the sites that uh, we visit and most groups that visit Israel go in order to see the site there in Jerusalem where all of this took place. And so he's brought there. They gather the whole garrison around him. Probably several hundred Roman soldiers are present as a result of that. And then they stripped him. And so here is the idea. He's been delivered. What was the crime that he had committed? He, his claim to be the king of the Jews. And so this is what was pronounced concerning him. This is the charge that was going to be nailed to the cross above, uh, above his head, the reason for his crucifixion. You remember last time we spoke and Pilate said, uh, don't you hear these accusations that are being made against you? Uh, are you the king of the Jews? And he, Jesus said, it is as you have said. And Pilate remembered that. He realized it about Jesus and made that the charge for which Jesus uh, was uh, crucified. And so here they have a king that has been delivered to him, a man who claims to be the king of the Jews. Now you realize that the Jews did not like the Romans. They, that's an understatement. And the Romans hated the Jews. It was a miserable place. If you were a soldier in the Roman Empire, one of the places you did not want to be stationed was in Palestine or in Israel, or in Jerusalem. And so they disliked the rebellion of the Jews, the pride of the Jews. That's how they kind of interpreted all of it. And so they, uh, they, they hated the Jews. And here now they have someone who claims to be the king of the Jews. Now, many of these soldiers would have been to Rome. They've seen all of the majesty of Rome, all of the chariots, all of the horses, all of the art, all of the architecture, again, all of the majesty of Rome and, and the majesty of the Roman kings or the Ro Roman Caesars and emperors. And then in contrast, here they have this single solitary man. 
And here he is in the whipped condition that he's in. Nobody stands with him. He's all alone. And here he is with his claim that he is the king of the Jews. It's an absolutely pathetic scene before them. And so they begin the mocking. They begin to heap now this kind of emotional pain and mental pain upon Jesus in the midst of it. And so what king is a king without having a robe? And so they stripped him of the garments that he had, and they put a scarlet robe then on him. Well, what king is a king without a crown? And so they then twisted a crown of thorns, and they put it on his head. I have in my office upstairs in this very building uh, a crown made of thorns from the very uh, area of Israel, and the thorns are two to three inches thick, and to have that pressed down upon your head and wedged into uh, your skull and into the flesh of your skull, and that's exactly what uh, they did. Well, a king's got to have a reed. He's got to have a scepter, right? So they found a reed, and they, you know, pushed it into his right hand, and then they proceeded to bow the knee before him, one after another, kneeling down before him, but not with any kind of real reverence or respect, but in order to mock him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. I can never read this passage without also thinking about Philippians chapter 2, which declares that every knee is going to bow. And every tongue is going to confess Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I hope all of these uh, members of the Roman military ultimately became Christians because they're in for quite a surprise one day when uh, what they did in a mocking fashion they ought to have done out of sincerity and that he was really the king of the Jews and more than that, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And so when uh, then they proceeded to, uh, they spat upon him. And of course, this is the ultimate expression of contempt. They're going, they're, go, they're, they're crossing a line now in this. They're losing control of themselves emotionally on this scene. So this is, when you spit at someone, I mean, that's the highest insult that you can mete out upon a person even today. You want to get a person to flash into anger uh, immediately, just spit, uh, spit on them and you'll accomplish it. It's the ultimate insult. And now they're moving away from a mocking and a scorning now to absolute contempt and here is all of this bitterness, all of this vile that is within them as Roman soldiers against the Jews, and now they are going to express it against the one who claims to be the king of the Jews. And so they spat on him, and then they took the reed out of his hand, and they began to strike him on the head with that reed, uh, with that crown of thorns still uh, upon his uh, head. And when they had uh, mocked him then, they, as they continued, they took the robe off of him. Imagine now his entire body his, in, from on his back and, and the, the opening of the flesh even forward to his sides and over his shoulders and all. He's one big, gigantic, gaping wound. And they put this scarlet robe on him, and then they proceed to pull it off. As his body is trying to, the blood is to, trying to coagulate, it's trying to heal itself in some measure, the miracle that the human body is, and they just open everything up again now as they take the robe off of him, they put his own clothes upon him, and then they led him away to be crucified. 
You know, when you, uh, and, and all of this goes on without a single peep uh, from uh, him, and all in order that someone like me and someone like you might be saved and forgiven of our sins. Sometimes, you know, you can listen to, you know, the graphicness of the crucifixion scene and the scourging and so forth of, of what happened in that particular scene and, and, uh, and wonder, you know, is there any revelation in the Scriptures about what Jesus was feeling even before the cross, what He was feeling, what He was thinking, what He was experiencing uh, through the scourging. And in the book of Hebrews, it uh, speaks to us of the fact that Jesus endured the cross and He despised the shame. It was a humiliation for Him. It would have been a humiliation for any innocent person, but as the Son of God, a humiliation, a shame that He despised. He despised what uh, was being done to him in this entire uh, scene. And the writer of the book of Hebrews lets us know it. And so he comes out of the praetorium. They're taking him now to Calvary in order to officially crucify him. And as they come out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and him they compelled to bear Jesus' cross. This tells us that the beating that Jesus had uh, received was so great now that he has no strength left uh, to even carry the crossbar of the cross that he's going to be crucified on. They have meted out a savage beating upon him. There is this man by the name of Simon. He's a man of Cyrene, which was a city in North Africa, which had a very significant Jewish population. He has probably made the pilgrimage from that city in order to come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast. And he is evidently not excited about the fact that he's come for this pilgrimage, and now he's about to be pulled into being involved with the crucifixion of some criminal at the hands of the Romans. And how do we know that this might have been his mindset related to all of this? It wasn't that, you know, Simon of Cyrene looked and said, look at what they're doing. This is an innocent man. This is the Son of God. This is terrible what they've done to him. I'm going to help him carry his cross to Calvary. That's probably not what happened. And we know that probably because of the word compelled that is used there. He had no interest in getting involved in all of this business. Remember that a Roman soldier under Roman law in the ancient world was free to compel anyone in the Roman Empire uh, to carry something for him for the distance of one mile. That's why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount declared to us that if somebody calls upon us to go one mile with them, then to volunteer and go two miles with them, retake charge of the situation uh, by means of grace. So they compel him, and what they would do is simply take the head of their spear, put it on, a, on a, uh, the shoulder of a person, and then say, carry this, and they could force them to carry it for a distance of one mile, and they were clearly within a distance of one mile uh, between the praetorium and what we know to be Calvary today. And so they compelled him now to bury, I mean to bear rather, uh, Jesus' cross. And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say the place of a skull, 
If you go to Jerusalem today or go online and look at the pictures of Calvary, and you see even with the erosion of weather and water and so forth in Jerusalem of 2,000 years, you still see the backdrop uh, 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 to Calvary, and it has this, uh, it looks like a skull. And, and so it had taken on that name uh, the place of the skull, and that's where they did the, um, uh, the crucifying. And so they came to the place called Golgotha, that is to say the place of the skull, and they gave Jesus sour wine mingled with gall to drink, but when he had tasted it, he would not drink. This is um, another uh, act of disrespect toward Jesus on his way to the cross. It was very, very common that when someone was going to be crucified before they drove the nails in, the Romans would offer the criminal a taste of wine, something in order to begin to uh, dull the pain. They offer this uh, concoction uh, to Jesus, but when he tastes it, uh, he realizes what they've done instead of giving him something that they would give to a normal prisoner is that they added gall, which was a very bitter-tasting ingredient. They added it to the wine in order to make it undrinkable for him. And when he tasted it and realized the insult that even was this was, uh, he would not drink it. And then there in verse 35, uh, astonishing in its simplicity, and then they crucified him. And they uh, then crucified Jesus there at Calvary. Josephus, the famous Jewish historian, he called crucifixion the most wretched of all ways of dying. And Josephus had seen plenty of it uh, in the course of his life as a Jew who then became a Roman uh, historian. The death by crucifixion was intended to make an example of a person. It was uh, it was a means of breaking them physically. It was a means of breaking them emotionally, mentally, breaking them on all levels. The, the interesting thing about crucifixion is no two crucifixions would be the same because they you because of the mental reserve, the emotional reserve, the physical strength and reserve of the person that was being crucified. No one could tell how long anyone la- would last before. Uh, they would ultimately uh, break. And so uh, the crucifixion, one of the cruelest instruments of, of, of death, inventions of, uh, uh, in terms of death in human history. The origin of crucifixion, interestingly enough, it or- originated in Persia. And uh, they, the Persians developed crucifixion as a means of death because of the fact that they believed that the earth was considered to be sacred uh, to the god of Ormuz. And so the criminal was not to be killed touching the ground because that ground was dedicated to their god, the god that they worshipped in the ancient world. And so the uh, person was lifted up and they were to die without any contact with, uh, with the earth and with the world. From Persia, crucifixion then passed on to Carthage in North Africa. It was there that the Romans uh, d- discovered it. And then 
began to make it their means of capital punishment in the Roman Empire. But even the Romans, they considered crucifixion to be so inhumane that it was forbidden that any Roman citizen could ever be crucified. It was for slaves. It was for foreigners. It was for insurrectionists. It was for the worst kind of criminals. Now, the reason that I bring this up related to Jesus is because it's very, very significant. Because in Psalm 22, where David prophesies a thousand years before uh, Jesus was ever born, prophesies concerning the coming of the Messiah that he would die by means of crucifixion. But crucifixion was not the means of capital punishment in, uh, in Israel. Stoning was the means of capital punishment in the law of Moses. And here you have David, a thousand years before Jesus is even born, speaking of the fact that the Messiah would be born into the world and ultimately die at a time in which some group of people have control of the Middle East and their means of the death of a criminal was not stoning but crucifixion. I mean, you can't make that stuff happen. And that's exactly what happened. I mean, you, if you were to read Psalm 22 in David's day, you would have thought, all right, number one, they're not going to kill the Messiah. And number two, if they do, they'll stone him to death. It'll never be by crucifixion. That's not the means of death in, in Israel. And yet it is precisely uh, what happened. I mean, the intricacy of the Word of God, the prophetic element of it related uh, to Jesus. And so... Here he was crucified, and as they crucified him there, and, and he comes to Calvary, there he would be laid down upon the cross. The mallet is there. The nails are there. Everything is there. Jesus would have been laid on top of the cross. His arms would have been stretched out. His hands would have been opened up, and uh, they would have exposed then his palm. And then in the middle of that palm, this great nail, seven inches long, three-eighths uh, uh, of an inch in its, in its uh, width would have been driven through his one hand, and then the other hand stretched out, driven through that palm, and then finally the nail driven through his feet and into the cross. And you think about uh, the pain that must have just shot through his body there as, uh, as the nails are driven through his hands and feet and into uh, the, the wood. And then as that, all of that happens, Jesus is then, uh, the cross would have been pulled up, a hole at the base of the cross. It would have been pulled up and pulled up until finally it would have dropped several feet into the hole. They would have used wedges then to secure it into place and then begins the death by crucifixion. And the death by crucifixion was death by suffocation and by heart failure. Uh, because here you are in this condition where you've been scourged and you're in a weakened condition, and in order for you to breathe, you would have to push against, pull with your hands against uh, those nails in order to get up and to be able to fill your lungs, push against the nail in your feet, but you could only hold that for so long because of the pain, and then to release back down and then to exhale, and then the next breath, until finally it was a place of measuring every single one of his breaths against, is this breath worth 
the pain that I'm about to incur in order to receive it into my lungs. And every breath was a protest of the body, the weighing of the price that would be paid to take another breath until ultimately a person would no longer be able to lift themselves up. They would suffocate and ultimately experience a heart failure there on the cross. One of the reasons that I mentioned this is for our own devotional life and our own relationship with the Lord. It helps us to understand why Jesus' seven statements upon the cross were so brief, uh, why they were just, for the most part, a sentence or a very short sentence in length, the price that he paid to be able to communicate anything. And it makes everything that he said upon the cross even more uh, precious and even more valuable uh, uh, to us when we realize what he went through in order uh, to, to do that. And so Jesus here is crucified. He's hanging there, as Isaiah declared, 740 years before Jesus was even born, that when the Messiah hung upon that cross, he would be unrecognizable, not only for who he was, but for, as a human being. And that's the depth of punishment that he went, went through even prior to the cross. And you've heard me say it before, but if you had seen Jesus just teaching 24 hours earlier on the grounds of the temple and listened to his voice and, and listened to how he looked at people, loved people, looked at, listened to the handling of his scriptures, the scriptures, and you were to look at him and say, I will never forget that face. I will never forget that man. I will never forget the voice of God through him. And then 24 hours later, you stumble upon Calvary and you're walking by that cross and you look at him upon that cross. You would have never known it was the same human being. He was hardly recognizable, even as a human being. And then while he hung upon the cross, the Holy Spirit gives a record of what the audience engaged themselves in. While he hung there in the torment, they divided his garments and they cast uh, lots that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And this was a quotation from Psalm 22 by David. The only thing Jesus had of any value when he died was this single robe that he had. They didn't want to cut it in pieces. It was valuable. And so they cast lots to see who would be able to get the garment in its entirety. And then they sat down and they kept watch uh, over him there upon the cross. And they put over his head the accusation the Roman soldiers did written against him, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right hand and the other on the left. And those who passed by, they blasphemed him, wagging their heads. Now, this takes it to an entirely different level. When you see the word blasphemed in the Bible, it means injurious speech. Uh, these are people who are now deliberately, intentionally, desiring to injure Jesus with their speech. There is nothing more they can do to him physically. There is no more punishment that they can meet out upon him as he hangs upon the cross. But they're not content with it. These are awful human beings. They're not content with that. Now they want to take anything that is still intact related to his spirit, 
related to his mind, related to his emotion, and begin to injure him on that level emotionally and mentally, and so they begin now to blaspheme him. Make no mistake, they knew exactly what they were doing, and they were going to try and take him down another notch even, in, uh, 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 even beyond the physical level. And here's what they said to him in blaspheming him. Number one, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. And here they are mocking his teaching. Jesus declared, destroy this temple, speaking about the temple of his body. And in three days he would raise it up. Not talking about Herod's temple. And so they mocked him uh, related to his teaching. And then they declared, if, uh, uh, if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. And here they mock his claim to be uh, the Son of God. Prove your deity now by coming uh, down from the cross. And likewise, the chief priests also, mocking with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he, has, if he is the King of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. And in this they're mocking his claim to be the King of the Jews. And they went on then in verse 43, and they declared, He trusted in God. Let him, that is God, deliver him now, if he, that is God, will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And in this they are declaring to him and claiming to him that he has no relationship with God. And uh, and that, uh, that God neither loved him nor cared for him as he hung there upon the cross. Again there in verse 42, he saved others himself he cannot save. In this, they were mocking his claim to be a Savior. The interesting thing about that statement in verse 42, he saved others himself he cannot save, is they uttered truth concerning him uh, from one end of that statement to the other. There is no acknowledgment in the entire course of Jesus' public ministry of the greatness of his ministry, the supernaturalness of his ministry. The Jewish religious leaders wouldn't give him any nod at all, any credit at all. And yet here, while he's on the cross, there is no hope for him to survive this crucifixion. Now they let kind of eke out of their hearts what they knew to be true about him. He saved others. And Israel was from the north, the south, the east, the west. It was one great testimony of the power of Jesus to save people and to change their lives and to impact their lives. But they then went on and said, he saved others himself he cannot save. And it was true of Jesus, but in a way that they never intended it to be. He saved others, but himself he cannot, himself he cannot save. And the truth of that, they missed it, but it was the very truth concerning our salvation. If Jesus came down from that cross, and he could have, if he had come down from that cross, then we would not have had the sacrifice that was required for the forgiveness of sins in order for us to be saved. It was only because he did not save himself that he could then save others. But this was the kind of blasphemy that they were heaping uh, upon him in that uh, entire 
uh, seen. The interesting thing, too, and one of the reasons that I bring it out is I want to understand as much as I can about Jesus on the scene of the cross. What was He experiencing? What was it going through? And and if you look at this and you think, Pastor, you're overstating, you know, the effect that this mocking of these uh, Jewish religious leaders, the mocking that it had upon Jesus, let me read a passage to you from Psalm 69, one of the great messianic psalms of the Old Testament where God reveals to us the thoughts of the Messiah of Jesus upon the cross. It was written by David, but it was fulfilled by Jesus, the volume of the book testifying of him. In Psalm 69, David writes, speaking of the Messiah, reproach, that's what's being heaped upon him, reproach has broken my heart. Think about that. Reproach has broken my heart, And I am full of heaviness, for I looked for someone to take pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. Fascinating to me that the Holy Spirit wanted us to have a glimpse of what Jesus was experiencing, the impact of the scorning and the mocking that it had upon him as he hung upon the cross there. And even the robbers who were crucified, they reviled him with the same uh, thing. And then about the sixth, uh, from the sixth hour noon until the ninth hour, that is three in the afternoon, there was darkness over all of the land. And here God does something supernatural. Jesus does not produce this is Jesus hangs upon that cross from noon to three. The entire area of Calvary is then shrouded in darkness. And it was something that the Father did. And I think that darkness communicates a lot of things related to the scene of of, uh, Jesus' death upon the cross. I think one of the things that it does is it reveals to us the presence of the Father. To me, God the Father is the most overlooked figure in the scene of Jesus' death upon the cross at Calvary. We think of Jesus supremely, of course we do. We know that the Holy Spirit was active and present, but the Father was there as well. And the Father was present watching the death of His Son in this way in order to provide us with the forgiveness of sins. And so he shrouds it in darkness. Darkness is, you know, when you go to funerals and this kind of thing, people wear dark clothing. It's a sign of mourning, mourning the death of someone else. And so God takes and he shrouds the entire thing in darkness as he mourns the sacrifice of the death of his only begotten son in order for us to be saved. It was a father's son who died on Calvary that day, and the father made his presence known. I think that the darkness spoke of the father shrouding Jesus and protecting him from the shame of the scene. If you ever go into 
uh, a hospital where somebody's struggling in some kind of a physical condition and so forth, and they're in no place to really be seen by anyone else other than medical professionals, then uh, what the medical professionals will do is they will draw a shade around the patient in order to give them privacy in the midst of whatever it is that they're dealing with. And the Lord God the Father does the same thing here in order to uh, give Jesus some uh, semblance of protection in the midst of the shame. I think it also communicates the darkness of the human heart, the single greatest sin, the single worst act in human history that has ever been committed by mankind was when mankind crucified his creator upon the cross. And so it represents the darkness of the human heart, but I also think it represents the greatness of the spiritual warfare that Jesus went through upon that cross. And remember, Paul will write later in one of his epistles of the fact that Jesus was on the cross disarming powers and principalities. There was something going on in the spiritual realm. We already know that Satan was involved in uh, Judas Iscariot. He was involved in the use of the Jewish religious leaders and Pilate and so forth. The whole thing is just an awful spiritual darkness that is going on. And yet Jesus was in all of this disarming powers and principalities, and the disarming would be made manifest ultimately in his crucifixion. But there was a great, great spiritual warfare, an onslaught, uh, spiritually speaking, against Jesus upon the cross. And then, of course, the darkness was, uh, the whole scene was shrouded in darkness for those three hours because. I think, and most all of us believe, that it was during those three hours that Jesus bore the sins of the whole world. When Paul wrote, and he said, and he, that is the Father, made him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Listen, when I, when I became a Christian, the only sin I had ever borne was my own sin, and I couldn't even carry that. Imagine being perfection on that cross, carrying the sin of billions and billions of people through thousands of years. And there as he hangs upon the cross, carrying that, our, our sin upon that cross, bearing it, it spoke of the darkness, the great darkness of our sin. And as he's in that particular condition and in that darkness, about the ninth hour, three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, and it is Aramaic and it's translated for us in Matthew where he cries out to the Father, again in the condition that he's in, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And here to me is one of the most amazing scenes in human history where something happens within the Godhead of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that had never happened before and would never again happen, where some forsaking takes place on the part of the Father toward the Son while He bears our sin. It's all I'll say about it. I've heard people try and explain, you know, what's going on and all of that. 
I don't know. All I know is that there is the word forsake. Something has happened within the Godhead as He bore my sins upon the cross that required a forsaking of the Father, something unprecedented within the Godhead for me to be forgiven and saved and mankind to be forgiven and saved. And He experiences a loneliness, not just related to man, but related to the Godhead that he would never know before and could never be put into words. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he had to be forsaken in order to bear our sin. And some of those who stood there, when they heard that, they said he's calling for Elijah. As he says, Eli, Eli, they misunderstood. And immediately one of them ran and he took a sponge And he filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed, and he offered it to Jesus to drink. And the rest said, let him alone. Let's see if Elijah will come and and to save him. And Jesus then cried out with a loud voice, and he yielded up his spirit. And at that point, Jesus died upon the cross. He yielded up his spirit. No man takes my life. He would still be on the cross at Calvary in Jerusalem today, if he had chosen to be so. No man takes my life. I lay it down of myself. And so having accomplished what he came to do, he then yielded up his spirit. And then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom, and the earth quaked and the rocks were split open. And so immediately upon the moment that Jesus is crucified, just a couple of stones throw away from Calvary was Herod's temple. And God takes, and while Jesus is dying upon the cross, the Jewish religious leaders are preparing for the Passover feast. And Jesus' death upon the cross was the fulfillment of that feast. And there they are as they're making all of the preparations and all, and there they are in the... uh, Uh, holy place and in the area of the temple, and all of a sudden they hear this ripping of this curtain that separated the, the, the veil of the temple, that separated the holy of holies from the holy place. We're told, according to historians, that the width of the curtain was a span in terms of a person's hand. It was five to six inches. If you've ever torn a sheet that is nothing, Imagine the sound that went forth as that great curtain was torn in two. And as the priests are working in there, as they are uh, getting things ready, and that veil or, or that, uh, that great ter- veil is then torn from top to bottom, and they see the Holy of Holies exposed. The entire Old Testament temple and tabernacle was basically the communication uh, of an exposing in our worship of God. It was the exposing of our sin. There was the court of the Gentiles, where a Gentile coming to worship God at the Jewish temple could only go to the court of the Gentile, and then he had to stop. He could not go into the court of the Jewish women, which was the next progression toward the Holy of Holies. Only Jewish women then and Jewish men could do, go into the court of the women, but then there was a wall and a barrier from by, beyond which Jewish women couldn't even go. 
only the men could go. And then beyond that, there was a, a portion in terms of the service that was conducted immediately around uh, the, the temple that only the Levites and the priests could go in that immediate area where there was the bronze altar and then uh, the various furnishings within the holy place. And you had this temple that was this rectangular building. Two-thirds of it was what was called the holy place as the priest would go in on a daily basis and bring in the offering of show bread and then, and then to, you know, keep the altar of incense burning and so forth. But then there was that curtain that separated the holy of holies, which represented the presence of God, from the holy place. And in terms of the holy of holies, only one man went in there. On one day in the whole year, only the high priest went in to the Holy of Holies, and only after sacrifices had been offered for his sin. And the Holy of Holies represented the very presence of God. And when God tears that veil in the temple, he exposes for the first time in history to anyone and everyone, the holy of holies. It would have shocked the priests. And what God was communicating in tearing that veil, because it wasn't just a miracle, watch me pull a rabbit out of my hat. There was a message behind the miracle. And what he was communicating was at the moment that his son died upon the cross at Calvary, that his son had provided something unparalleled in human history, and that is an access to God and a relationship with God that man had never known before. And as that holy of holies hung, show wide open to anyone and everyone that was in the realm of of the temple there, it was communicating now that relationship to God, access to God is available to everyone who puts their faith in Christ. Again, you almost have to be Jewish to let it blow your mind to go one man, the high priest, one day out of the year, only after sacrifices. And now God opens the holy of holies up to you and me on the basis of faith in Jesus. And the writer of the book of Hebrews brings it all out about how, because of Jesus, the throne of God has become a throne of grace, that you and I are able to approach any time, day or night, with any need that we had. This was mind-blowing for the Jews to have this kind of access to God, to have this kind of intimacy of relationship with God. And that, that is what Jesus has provided for us where we can access that throne as often as we want, no matter who we are, no matter where we are in the world. And then marvel of marvels, as the writer of the book of Hebrews declares, that when we approach that throne of grace on the basis of Jesus' sacrifice, it is always to receive the grace and mercy that we have need of. And you notice that that veil was torn from top to bottom because salvation is provided to mankind. That access to God is not something that we earn from man up to God. It is something that God has provided from heaven to us. And God is careful to let us know that here is this tearing of the veil, the renting of the veil from the top to bottom. The earthquake 
in supernatural phenomenon associated with Jesus' death. The rocks were split, the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep uh, were raised and coming out of the graves. This happened after his resurrection. Uh, Matthew tells us they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And so the supernatural phenomenon that surrounded Jesus' death so much so that when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus, they saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. Listen, these guys were experts in death. And they said, we've never seen anyone die like this, and we've never seen phenomenon like this. Truly, this was the Son of God. And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee ministering to him, were there looking on from afar. And so the women watched from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joses, and the mother of, uh, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. And so they were at a distance, but they watched all of this, and they watched the death of Jesus upon the cross. The apostles are scattered in all directions. And then when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, and he was a, a Pharisee, and he had come to believe in Jesus, and he was a wealthy man, and he had come, as we see here, become a disciple of Jesus. He doesn't scatter. The apostles scatter and abandon. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea stood by Jesus in, in that, that scene. And seeing that Jesus was now dead, he went to Pilate, and as a man of some prominence, he asked for the body of Jesus. And Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in clean linen cloth, and then he laid it in his tomb, which he had hewn out of rock, and he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb, and he departed. It's fascinating because, again, here you have the fulfillment of Messianic prophecy concerning the Messiah in Isaiah chapter 53. What were they planning to do with Jesus' body once he's dead on the cross? What they would, did with all of the bodies of the criminals in Jerusalem? They took them down. They took them to the Valley of Hinnom, which was the garbage dump of Jerusalem, and which was always smoking and always smoldering because the garbage was burning and where the dogs would go and eat any kind of flesh that was left there. They, that's what they intended to do with Jesus' body and would have done, except that Isaiah wrote by the Spirit of God that, they, that in his death they were going to plan that kind of a burial for him, but that the Messiah would end up being buried with the rich, even as perfectly happened here with Joseph of Arimathea. And so here he is, tenderly treated, tenderly handled his dead body, put in the tomb. The large stone is rolled against the door of the tomb, and, and then Joseph departed. And Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary is sitting opposite the tomb. So they recognized where his body had been laid. And then on the next day, that fascinates me, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together to Pilate. It's the day after Jesus' crucifixion. They've had their big victory. They won. Jesus is dead. And yet to a man, 
They go home, and they try to sleep, and they can't sleep. They cannot shake this idea that somehow they are not rid of the problem that Jesus of Nazareth represents to them. And so they wake up that next morning, and they go to Pilate, and here's their plan. They have a concern. And they said, sir, we remember while he was still alive, they can't say his name. I'll say his name, Jesus. While he was still alive, how that deceiver said, after three days I will rise. They were more careful students than the apostles in some regards. And therefore command that the tomb may be made secure until the third day. We want a Roman guard and a Roman seal on this tomb for this reason, lest his disciples come by night, steal him away, and then report to the people that he has risen from the dead when they stole his body, and so the last deception will be worse than the first. And Pilate said to them, you have your guard, go your way, make it as secure as you know how. And so they went and they made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. And so it is interesting. Sometimes you'll read, again, you know, the different theories that people have to try and explain away the resurrection of Jesus. And one of those theories is the swoon theory and the idea that uh, Jesus went through all that he went through prior to the cross and then upon the cross. And then when they laid him in the coolness of that tomb, that he somehow uh, cooled down and he revived and then he went on about his business. Listen, the Romans knew how to kill people. And we know from the other gospels that they made sure he was dead by putting that spear up underneath his rib cage and piercing his pericardium so both water and blood came out. No, he was dead. And even his enemies here refer to the fact that he was dead, his body. They're going to come potentially to take the body. And the interesting thing, the Bible talks about how God will, makes the wrath of man, even the wrath of man, to praise him. And they come and they ask for this guard. And in asking Pilate for the guard, Pilate says, listen, you take as many soldiers as you want. You want five soldiers, you want 500 soldiers, whatever you want to try and, uh, you know, uh, protect against what this man has claimed he's going to do, you have it. You have your guard, you name the size of it, you have your seal, whatever you want. It's like have fun storming the castle. I mean, you, you do whatever you want, but I think you're up against something impossible here. And then he tells them to then go their way, and Pilate has had it up to here with these people at this point, and basically he's saying, get out of my sight. He knows full well what they did to him in manipulating him the day before, and it doesn't taste any better in his mouth the day after than it did the day before. And so they had their guard. And the fascinating thing about the guard is that in placing that guard in, in its place is that the enemies of Christ uh, produced the evidence for the fact that the only thing that could explain that empty tomb was Jesus' resurrection. They guarded against any explanation of his body being stolen 
And what essentially they did is they set things in motion here that if that tomb did end up empty three days later, it was not because the body had been stolen away, but because there had been an actual resurrection. And so we stop there tonight, and we will pick it up concerning that resurrection the next time, if the Lord wills. I want us just to stay a moment longer. I would like the worship team to come forward. And I would like, even before the closing song, and though I know it keeps you a, a, a little bit later than, uh, than normal, I would like to sing one song and to be able to absorb and on some level a chance before we go get the kids and get in the car and head off into things, the incredible majesty and beauty and reality of what it is that we have studied concerning our Savior tonight. Mike, would you lead us in worship?